0: First, to the book of Samuel, Samuel chapter 21, the first book of Samuel chapter 21, and then we'll turn to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians chapter 4. Both passages will shed some light on our text, which as I mentioned is Psalm 34. Psalm of David, we'll read that a little bit later. Let's start with 1 Samuel 21. This is the background uh, to the writing of Psalm 34, and we'll read verses 10 through 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Uh, Shall this fellow come into my house? And that's where we'll pause. Oh, sorry, we'll go a couple of verses further. That's my mistake. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. From there, we'll go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, in the Pew Bible, page 1227. 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll read the whole chapter. Here the apostle writes about his experience and the experience of the other apostles uh, in their work for the Lord and how many troubles they experienced in that work. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, I am sorry, I'm just off the mark here this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, I was reading 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, With ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair As I mentioned, the text this morning is Psalm 34, so let's read that psalm together in the Pew Bible, page 588. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, and that's just another name for Achish, the king of Gath, so that he drove him out and he went away. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is Psalm 34. And in response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing the last Two stanzas in the Book of Praise, Psalm 34, the stanzas 8 and 9. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are some things in life that you cannot really understand until you experience them for yourself. For example, I can describe to you what it's like to snowboard or even ski down a world-class run like Whistler or Blackcomb, but that's not the same as feeling the thrill of that experience yourself, is it? I can show you what it, what it is to drive a car and tell you what it feels like to control the vehicle and be behind the wheel driving down the highway, but until you do it yourself, you don't really get it. Or take the Christmas goodies that your mom baked over the holidays this year. I mean, I could take one of the most tastiest delicacies off that tray and eat it in front of you and describe it to you moment by moment how that tastes, how that sweetness is so scrumptious and delicious. But having me describe it to you is not the same as tasting it for yourself, is it? You wouldn't be satisfied with me just explaining to you how good this baked good, this baked brownie is, would you? You would say, look, I want to taste it for myself. I want to see for myself how good it is. Well, brothers and sisters, it's the same when it comes to knowing God and having a relationship with the Lord. I can tell you all about it. I can explain it to you in great detail and offer some insights into how God saves, how wonderful His love and mercy and grace are, how good His promises are, and how good His commands are for us. I can tell you all about those things. I can even share with you my own experiences. But you really won't know what I'm talking about until you experience it for yourself like those christmas cookies you've got to dig in and taste for yourself how good the lord is well that is why david wrote psalm 34. He sings of God's grace and he he lays out for us the wonder of knowing the Lord up close and personal. Why does he do that? So that you and I can follow his example and taste for ourselves and see for ourselves that the Lord really is good for us personally. That'll be our theme this morning, this final Sunday morning of the year as I bring you this word of the Lord, taste and see. That the Lord is good taste and see that the Lord is good this means we need to seek him and fear him we know that David wants to teach us something right from the layout of the psalm now it's not very obvious in English with the exception that there are 22 verses Uh, that might be the clue in English because there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet but what David, the poet, does in Hebrew is he, he writes an acrostic song where every verse starts with a subsequent letter of the alphabet. So he starts with A, and he goes right through to Z in, in our alphabet. So he and the Holy Spirit through him are literally taking us through the ABCs. The reason that a poet might write an acrostic is to help listeners in the temple. You have to remember they they wouldn't have books like we have in our pews, but it would help people listening to remember the song. They could think of the alphabet, and they would be led to ponder its meaning more carefully. David even speaks like a teacher here in verse 11. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he's got a lesson here. As, as the king and shepherd of God's people, he wants to teach them something, and the lesson that he's eager to pass on is a lesson that David himself learned, and he learned it the hard way. The, psalm, uh, the title of the psalm says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, and as I mentioned, that's just another name for the king of Gath, so that Abimelech drove David out and he went away. That was the event that triggered the writing of Psalm 34. It's something David could never forget. We, we read about that experience in 2 Samuel 21, and I think all of us will know, most of us will know anyway, that David had been hunted by Saul for quite some time. And David had been becoming desperate because Saul was, had spies and assistants all over the land of Israel. So David didn't feel safe in the land of Israel. He ran away to the land of the Philistines. Think about the irony of that, that he ran to the city of Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistines. It hadn't been that long since David himself had led the armies of Saul to fight those very Philistines. And no one could have forgotten David's great triumph over Goliath. And do you know what Goliath's hometown was? The city of Gath. Exactly where David runs to now. He goes to Gath Do you know how desperate David must have been to run to that city of all cities as a kind of a refuge from Saul? It'd be something like an American general in the Middle East trying to find peace and safety in the harbor of the Iranian National Guard. Almost unthinkable. So, what we have here is David, he he was in trouble. He was, you could say, in a boiling pot of trouble in Israel but he jumps out of that boiling pot into the burning fire in the city of Gath. He's in worse trouble than he was before. you ever have that in your life where you're in some fix, some some jam, some kind of trouble, and you become desperate for a way out, so you scramble and you panic and you search around and you make a decision that lands you in even worse trouble? You suddenly have made things ten times as bad as they were before, and you find yourself completely stuck. David's original trouble was not of his own making, Saul persecuting him, but it was his own doing that brought him to the city of Gath, and now he's in a world of trouble and he has no way out. The only way out is with a miracle from the Lord. David knew he was as good as dead in that circumstance. But somehow, against all normal expectation, his archenemy, the king of Gath, believed him to be insane and released him. King Achish had every motive and, from his perspective, every right to kill David just out of revenge for all that he had done against the Philistines, but he ends up letting him go, thinking he's a madman. Now, people argue whether David was sinning or not when he pretended to be crazy in front of the Philistine king. But the focus of this psalm is is not on on David's action, but on the Lord's undeserved mercy in protecting David from his enemy. It was the Lord who worked in the heart of the king of Gath to give him that release. Verse 4 of our text, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It wasn't David's ingenuity at the end of the day. It was the Lord's grace. David had experienced the goodness of the Lord in this very concrete way. And he wants us to experience it too. That's why he he says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's exhorting the congregation. He's exhorting us, taste it and see it. That the teacher wants to get, a, get that lesson across. Come a little closer, he says, to his students, to, to his people. Test it out for yourself. See it with your own eyes. Experience it in your own life. Yahweh, your God, is truly good. It's not something you can know from a distance. It's not something you can learn in a, in a textbook. It's, it's not something that is sufficiently learned from head knowledge much more than knowing the facts about God, much more than sitting in a pew or sitting at home on our couch taking in information about God. This is, David's talking about going after God, talking to the Lord, listening to Him speak with you from the words of Scripture. It's walking with the Lord. It's it's feeling Him in your life, in your heart as a heavenly friend at work. In your life. That's what you have to taste and see, says David. Well, how do I do this? We want to ask. How do I actually get to experience for myself that God is good? Well, David tells us in the next line Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him." That's verse 8. You could also translate, blessed is the man who seeks refuge in him. That idea of seeking is very strong in this psalm. David's saying we should seek refuge. Refuge is safe shelter. There's a blessing for the person who looks to the Lord to be His shelter, shelter in whatever the storm is, protection from enemies, protection from the the tempest of grief, protection from frustration or or anger or despair. Whatever the trouble is filling your life, you run to the Lord and you seek from Him the refuge. It starts, this this is a very strong idea in the psalm. It begins in verse 4, I sought the Lord and the Lord answered me. Then verse 5, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Comes again in verse 10, those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. And then the psalm ends on the same thought, none of those who, who take refuge or better, seek refuge in the Lord will be condemned. This is how we start the taste test so to speak, you and I need to seek out our covenant God. This kind of seeking that David is speaking about, it's not searching for something that you don't really know where it is, like the hunt for uh, some mystery thing that you might uh, have in in a game at home. It's not like searching for the black box of an airplane that's crashed into the ocean. No, the the verb here assumes that you know where to find what you're seeking. It's very much like when you want to talk to the principal at school, then you look for him where you would expect to find him in the principal's office. When you want to talk to the boss at work, you go to the boss's desk. Well, in the same way, when you want to find your God, you knock on heaven's door you call out his name in prayer out of faith until he answers you you go to him you know where he is you know sometimes church members or people who know something about god they wonder they wonder why they don't experience what david is talking about this goodness of the lord they don't have that personal experience of it. They see David's joy in a psalm like this and many other psalms. They see David's enthusiasm. They hear David say that the Lord is good. but Quietly they say to themselves, but I've not not experienced any of this. What what is David talking about? Why all all this excitement, all I ever feel is distance from the Lord and, and boredom with God. brothers and sisters, the, the blessings of God, they don't come into our life automatically. We can't expect that. His goodness isn't experienced from a distance. If we do nothing, we can expect nothing. But David is telling us, if you want it, you have to seek it. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. I went out to Ask God, and He heard my cries. And to do that, we have to believe that God is there. We have to have trust that He's real, that His promises are also genuine and true, also for me personally. That's how it is in in life and in Scripture. Believing comes always before seeing, faith comes ahead of sight. The goodness of the Lord is something you have to believe is there for you before you can taste and see it. And then when you do believe, when you've got that trust in the Lord and all of His promises, then go to His office, so to speak. Find Him in His throne room by dropping to your knees in prayer, by bowing your head on your chest. Throw yourself upon the mercies of your God. In good days and bad, enter His courts. Seek an audience with your King and Heavenly Father and experience it for yourself how good His company is to sit there quietly and commune fellowship with the Lord. How safe you'll find yourself to be in His courtroom. How kind and loving and comforting His presence is. How powerful also his arm is to assist you in your time of trouble. If that is something you do, if you you bring yourself to that point in faith, it's impossible to feel indifferent or bored with God. Then you will do as David did and shout out, Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who takes refuge in him. And after experiencing His goodness, you will find find it a joy to fear the Lord. For that's the other repeated command in Psalm 34. And together they show us how to really taste and see in a a continual way that the Lord is good. It starts in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. It comes again in verse 11, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So David earlier said, I will teach you to seek the Lord. Now he's saying, I will teach you to fear the Lord. Well, what does that mean, to fear the Lord? It doesn't mean to be afraid in a cowering sense that you're in dread of God. No, the enemies of God have that in the presence of the Almighty, but it is to have a very deep reverence and respect for the Almighty, a heartfelt respect that's born out of a love for the Lord. And out of that deep respect, you set out to honor the Lord by obeying His commandments. To fear God means in practice that you obey His covenant laws with a sincere heart. That's the expression, that's how you put into practice the fearing of God. So when you stand back and look at the whole psalm, you find that what we have here are two sides, the two sides of God's covenant. On the one hand, there are the promises of the Lord where He promises to care and save and deliver His people. And then along with it, Is our obligation to follow his commands obey his laws we must seek the Lord we must appeal to his promises and at the same time we need to commit our lives to fearing the Lord that is to walk in obedience before him seek and fear trust and obey cling to the promises while obeying the commandments David expands upon fearing the Lord in verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's a particular example of obeying the commands. Turn away from evil and do good. That's more general. Seek peace and pursue it. This is what God is asking and demanding of us in His covenant. And, brothers and sisters, if you wonder why sometimes you haven't yourself tasted that the Lord is good, that you haven't experienced it, could it be that you are not turning away from evil? This usually goes together with not seeking the Lord, not praying. If your prayer life is next to nil, can you really be at the same time dedicating yourself? to obeying the Lord. Prayer and obedience always go together. It's not rocket science, how the Lord lays it out for us, but it definitely will take action on our part. Seek and fear. Those are verbs. Those are commands. Seek and fear. Pray and obey. Speak to your God in prayer and obey your God in daily life and then you will experience what David has experienced his presence with you his aid bailing you out his power at work for you and in you his peace filling your heart you will experience that the Lord is there with you taste it and see for yourself that he's truly good Well, what does that part mean exactly, that God is good? Does David mean that we believers will never experience bad things? Not at all. David is not at all teaching here a health and wealth gospel, so-called gospel. Believers cannot expect to avoid suffering and trouble in this life. Look at verse 19. David is very real. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's God's way of reminding us, I never promised you a rose garden. I didn't promise you a trouble-free life, but I promise to deliver you out of the troubles. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Troubles will come. But the Lord will deliver us out as we seek and fear Him. David says, the righteous cry for help, and the righteous will be delivered. Well, who are the righteous? We shouldn't be afraid of that word. Sometimes we think that refers to sinless people, but that is not the way Scripture uses that word. The righteous in the Bible are not Sinless people because everyone sins except the Lord Jesus Christ, but the righteous in Scripture are humble People who recognize their sinfulness and yet trust in the Lord to forgive them all their sins The righteous are those who don't look to themselves for salvation don't find strength in themselves to solve all of life's problems We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't depend on our own skill and ability to get through life, but we depend on the Lord. Of course, we use our skills, and we exercise effort, but it's always in dependence on the Lord. There's a contrast between those who depend on themselves and those who depend on the Lord in verse 10. David uses a metaphor. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Young lions. That seems to be a metaphor for powerful human beings, young men who are filled with strength and power, Just like a young lion is at the peak of his power, they can hunt and kill for their food at will. If any beast is going to have its way in the jungle, it's going to be the lions, and it's going to be the young lions. They are their own boss. They depend on their own strength and ability. But, says the Holy Spirit, even these kings of the jungle go hungry once in a while because their strength fails them, their ability fails them. Even young lions can't always provide for their needs. But in contrast, those who look to God to provide for their needs will lack no good thing. Isn't that something? This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. We may suffer, and there's members of our congregation suffering right now, We may be under affliction, but we never lack when we seek God. By seeking and fearing the Lord, we will continue to taste that He is good. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself did as He walked this earth? Jesus never pretended, even though He was the Son of God, in human flesh he never pretended to be self-sufficient or self-reliant he spent nights in prayer to his father he also never claimed his rights or defended his own cause in, in front of other humans but he trusted his father to vindicate him jesus as man sought the lord And he feared the Lord, his God. He prayed and he obeyed, though he suffered greatly in life and in death. Yet through it all, he tasted and saw that the Lord really is good. Christ was not spared afflictions, but he was delivered out of them through the resurrection on the third day. That's what Paul is speaking about too as we read it from 2 Corinthians 4. He describes the experience of himself and his companions as gospel preachers we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies Afflicted, but always experiencing the strength of the Lord holding them up. Jesus was afflicted in a unique way. As the sinless substitute standing in for sinners like us, Christ felt the suffering more sharply and deeply than we will ever know. But now that Christ is king in heaven and has sent us his spirit to live in our hearts we may know we may experience the goodness of the lord even more than david did christ's spirit lives in us he abides with us in the sorrows in the pains in the suffering so that we may taste this goodness of god more sweetly and see it more clearly than david could This goodness of God, brothers and sisters, it's there, it's real. And it's yours to enjoy, and mine too. So come, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Make that connection with your God today. Seek Him, fear Him, and let His goodness sweep over your life. Amen.